Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, a recent poll showed that something like 70% of young people had no idea who Chairman Mao was. It's extraordinary at a time when, of course, we know an awful lot about the Holocaust and about the Second World War and about Nazism. There is extraordinary unawareness of the crimes of communism over the 20th century. But there is a campaign going on to help put that right, and that is to establish a museum of communist terror. And the man who's leading that is my guest today. His name is James Bartholomew. He is a columnist and writer of such books of the welfare state we're in and the welfare of nations. So thank you very much for joining us today, uh, James. First things first, how many people are we talking about who are victims of communism? I know that there are various different um, statistics, but how many deaths do you think resulted from communism? Um, the statistics are all over the place, and I once tried to work out why they differed, how, what difference of methodology resulted in different figures. But you soon get in mired uh, in, in incredibly complex calculations and estimates, country by country, um, and there are enormous variations. One reason, I mean, so some people actually add in those people who were not born because their parents were killed. Uh, oh, right. I, I think that's inappropriate yeah. and, and wrong. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you should call that the people who d didn't get born deaths. They're not no, deaths, no. in my view. Um, the, uh, the figures are, you know, the lower figures. I mean, I prefer to go for the lower figures. Uh, it's an expert field, and I'm not an expert in it, but they tend to be in the 80 to 100 million people who died who would not otherwise have died, right. uh, often through starvation, but also through execution or working in prison camps where the conditions were horrific and the death rate was very high. In that sort of case, you have to work out what was the death, what would have been the death rate of those people naturally compared with what it was because they were working in that camp. So the calculations are not easy. And in some cases, some countries, um, the authorities are actually wanting to stop people finding out. It, it is amazing though, I think you'd agree, and we all know that the, the level of awareness about this is still low, isn't it? Particularly amongst young people. I mentioned that statistic there of 70% not knowing who Chairman Mao is. But also you've got other things such as uh, that they tend to see people like Blair and Bush as somehow being uh, bigger criminals against humanity than Pol Pot. Now, why is that in your view? Well, I mean, that's primarily because they haven't heard of Pol Pot. Yeah. Uh, nobody's told them about Pol Pot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, nobody, I mean, uh, nearly half of them haven't heard of Lenin. I mean, mm. I, I regard this as a, a major failure of British educational system, although it's not limited to the UK. I, I think it's happening in, uh, across the Western world that people are not being educated about it. And you may, you know, you may wonder why. Mm. And... Um, I mean, uh, but to be brutally frank, I, I think it's because the teaching profession and the academic profession is, is, is overwhelmingly left-wing. And although they are, m most of them will not be communists themselves, they may, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing here, they may well see communism as a sort of extension of their point of view and therefore something they want to go easy on. Whereas they see Nazism, rather wrongly in my view, as being completely contrary to, mm. to, to communist uh, views and therefore something that's completely different from what they believe in and therefore easy to condemn and we can go 
uh, whole hog on that on, on that subject. You see, uh, there is this argument too. That, you know, why has communism had, as it were, an easier ride than Nazism or whatever? Um, I think it was Martin Amis in his book *Cobra the Dread* who put this point: is that it's all about benign intent, you know, this idea that somehow or other the intention was good? Yes, uh, that's, uh, that's a very good line. Um, uh, benign intent, yes, they meant well. Yeah. And, you know, even when Stalin was signing death lists of people he wanted killed, you know, he probably managed to convince himself that it was for the good cause. You've actually got uh, with you a, a GCSE history book. I wonder if you could uh, mm. share us a bit. Yeah. This is, can you explain what, why you've got that? Yes, well, this is um, a GCS history book. Um, it's mainstream. It's what lots of children will be seeing when they learn history at GCSE. And it has a section on, the, um, on, on Russia and the collectivization of farms under, under Stalin. Um, it has you know, the results of collectivization, and you see there, it says there were pros and cons of collectivization. Amazing. Pros and cons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this is a process in which millions of people died. Uh, we've got quite reliable estimates now for Ukraine in which 3.9 million people die, died. This is, this is comparable to the Holocaust. Yes. And people, and this book, seen by hundreds and thousands of children in British schools is telling them there were pros and cons. Would they really say there were pros and cons of the Holocaust? I don't think so. I think it is obscene mm. and wrong. And one of the things I would like to do in my, in, in my project is to challenge some of the things that our children are being taught and indeed some of the things that our children are not being taught. At no point does this try to define how many millions died. It keeps off that subject. I think, you know, what is, uh, what is excellent about your, your project in the museum is that if one takes uh, for granted the fact that teachers maybe have that point of view, you know, on, and increasingly I think it's also ignorance maybe on the part of many of them, um, at least this is some, what you want to do is some place that they can actually go to and be taken to mm. and to see what, what actually would the format, what would the form be of your museum? Is it based on any other places that exist around the world at the moment? Well, there is, there is nowhere around the world that tries to bring it together. There, is, right. there are museums in different places, like uh, the one that uh, I, I was influenced to start this because of was the House of Terror in, in Budapest, Budapest yeah. which is a superb, um, not a huge museum, but a superbly done museum, I think. Mm. Um, and there are other ones. There's, there's, there's about six museums in Berlin that have different aspects mm. of, the, of the Cold War and the communist regime there. The Stasi Roman prison, I would certainly recommend, where you can actually go into cells that people were kept in by the Stasi, the secret police in, in East Germany. And in, uh, I've recently been in Estonia and uh, you know, going to KGB cells there. And you can also go to a hotel and see the place where they monitored all the guests staying in that hotel. They bugged their rooms and, and all the, the staff were working for the KGB and so on and so forth. So you can get various insights they tend to be one country, you know, at one place is studied, one aspect is studied. What I want to do is to bring this together and, and tell the story of, you know, of, all, of all the major countries, at least, you know, of Russia, um, of China, Hungary, Poland, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia. You know, bring all these countries together because that's I think, will bring home to people that it wasn't just one isolated despot like 
Stalin, who, who made it go bad. It happened over and over again. And it was, it was the something, and I'd like, ideally, I'd like in my dream of this, uh, how this would be, the last room would be posing the question to the visitor, um, what was it about communism that over and over again has led to terror? Mm. And that there, the, the answer to that is not easy. And there are various uh, you know, distinguished people like Robert Conquest, who wrote books about the Soviet Union, yep, yep. who have come up with some answers to that question. But it, if we don't think about that question and don't realize empirically that repeatedly communism has led to terror, then you're not beginning to understand that it's never just about a dictator. This is uh, vital, obviously, uh, simply because it's dangerous if people do not know, isn't it, what it leads to. I mean, I'm thinking very recently, there was a, a young commentator, Ash Sarkar, on television who said famously, I'm literally a communist. Right? And she, she said it out like this. And although there was some kind of outrage, basically it was muted, really. I think it's passed off. She's not, she's still on our screens or whatever. I mean, this is the point, isn't it, really? In a way, it is also a warning, a warning from history, surely. This is what the museum would be, wouldn't it? Well, it's a, it's a classic case of the, the, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. And um, I, I suppose my motivation in doing this is to make the next generation... I mean, I was thinking of my... When I came out of the House of Terror in Budapest, I'd learned things I didn't know about people being... Uh, deported from Hungary to gulags in, in the Soviet Union and a high percentage of them dying and never coming back. Um, you know, there's, there's an awful lot to, to, to learn. But when I came out of that museum, I realised that, um, that my children and their friends, they didn't know any of this. Yes, yes, uh, they yeah. didn't know even the basics. They hadn't heard of Chairman Mao. They didn't know about Lenin. They didn't know about the Great Terror. They didn't know about a whole lot of things which uh, are not familiar. I mean, it's not the fault of, of young people for not knowing. Nobody has told them. And so the, the, the mission is to make sure that they know. Then they can make up their own decision. I, do, I want to make the point that I do not want this museum, if, if it comes to fruition, I do not want it to be propaganda. I want it to be rigidly, strictly adherent to facts and never exaggerating. This yeah. seems to me of key importance because this is not something that needs exaggeration. Presumably as well, it would, like any other museum, have a research uh, function to, mm -hmm. I mean, it would have an academic function, wouldn't it? Oh, that would be marvellous, yes. I mean, you know, I've got to take it one step at a time, but yes, it would be, it would be good to have that. But also, in a way, I'm... The, the function that I'm doing at the moment, which I think is the, the top priority at the moment, is to record interviews with those people who were in, in communist regimes, mm -hmm. who experienced it firsthand. And uh, I've done about 15 interviews with them and another two with people who are expert for one reason or another. Um, and these documents will not be repeatable. Um, because you know these people are going to die, as we yeah, all are, yeah, yeah. and um, and so it's. I think it's vitally important to record these interviews now, these testimonies, yes. because I, I I don't know about you, but at the House of Terror, the thing that really made it powerful mm -hmm. for me um, was not the artifacts; it was the videos of individual, ordinary people, some standing in the garden saying. Uh, my name is so-and-so, I was arrested, I was, uh, hadn't done anything wrong, I was sent to a gulag, I saw people being beaten up, some of the, my friends died, and then I eventually came back and I survived. 
and that's it. What other things have emerged from the inter interval interviews that you've done, James? What what struck you about them? You mentioned something to me before we came yeah. on about people's sense of altruism. Yes, I I mean it, I did a whole series in um, in in Australia recently. I did nine interviews in Australia, and what struck me because for people obviously when they tell their story they sometimes become upset and even tearful, and I, I noticed when I thought about what had made them tearful that it was never anything that happened to them. It was not something, you know, I was beaten or I was, I was hurt or I was frightened. No, that never bring, made tears to their eyes. What would bring tears to their eyes would be if they recalled that someone had shown love for them. Yeah. So one woman, for example, was um, sent to a kind of re-education labor camp in China. And her father was also in a different part of the same prison labor camp. And the father went to the authorities and said, um, please let my young daughter, she was only in her 20s, please let her go, give her sentence to me. I really? will do the 10 years, let her free. She's, a, she's just an innocent girl. Let, I will have an extra 10 years of my sentence. And that, you know, sort of memory of that, remembering, remembering how loved she evidently yes, was yes, by her father, yeah, yeah. that's the sort of thing that, that makes people upset. Also concern for other people's well-being. There was a guy interviewed who was sent to a re-education camp in Vietnam. He was told it would be for two weeks, but it ended up being six years. And this was a, not an unusual experience. He was with a, a, a friend who was also being told it was for two weeks, and afterwards they would be integrated into Vietnamese society, and that would all be fine by the, the communist regime that had taken over South Vietnam. And this guy, when they were kept for more than two weeks, said, my, my children, I just left them temporarily with somebody. Mm. I thought I was only here for two weeks. Mm. And this guy was very upset. And the person I was interviewing was, became upset when he thought about his friend worrying about his children. And it's, it's, it's an interesting reflection yes, on human, the human mind that, you know, in extremists, what upsets us is not what happens to us. It's what, it's, it's what other people, whether people love us and, and what's happening to other people. These sort of interviews and films would be cap or have been captured and would be in the museum. Absolutely, yes, they, they yes. would be there. And they're also being uh, edited down right. into very short ones, which we show on Twitter and Facebook and on the website. Mm. And uh, so these are you know, these are two minutes and twenty seconds. Yes. Um, and um, so we've got one there on 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 Holodomor, which is an event which most people in Britain have never heard of. The death of three point nine million people. People have never heard of it. Do you think, and this is, you mentioned education, the lack of education, or, sh or should we say a, a kind of skewed education, but it seems to me it's something that goes to our, our general culture. I think it's been pointed out that when communism collapsed, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no, as it were, victory parade. There were, there were no Nuremberg trials. There was nothing like this. So in, a, in a way, it's sort of like been allowed to sort of amble along. But... It strikes me that, for example, quite rightly, you know, Hollywood produces an amazing number of films on Hitler and the Holocaust, and quite, quite rightly too, and dramas and what have you. But Stalin, for example, and Lenin, and these people, and Popper, almost, they're not part of, the, of, for want of a better word, the popular culture, are they? Except mm. for on T-shirts. Yeah, yes. It's, I mean, there is a, it is a minority. I agree. I agree there's a disproportion. However, you know, I do think there are some which are good. Yeah. And I mean, I think probably the one that's outstanding that people who watched it at the time remember most is The Killing Fields, yes. which won Oscars 
uh, about Cambodia, and it was a superbly made film that graphically brought home how, how the communist regime in Cambodia wanted to destroy anybody who had any education. I mean, literally, if you wore glasses, that meant you were, you were probably going to be killed. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an extraordinary regime, and, and The Killing Fields captured that. Um, and um, there are other films, there's a TV series on Stalin, American TV series um, w about Stalin, which is very, very good. A recent um, one? No, no, it's not a recent one. It's just that, mm -hmm. you know, the trouble is films is, you know, I, you know, films are a great medium of getting across what happened, mm. but the trouble is they don't last. So uh, yeah. uh, most people, most young people today will never have seen The Killing Fields. Yes, yes. They won't even heard of it. Yeah. Um, so it's, it makes an impact for one generation and then it goes away. Uh, the reason I want to make a, a physical museum is I want it to last for generations. I want it to become permanently part of the core knowledge of British people that this happened, that 80 to 100 million people died under communist rule. What stage are you at with the project at the moment then, James? What stage are you, are you at? Have you got what the thing is going to look like? Are you, you're obviously fundraising. Can you tell us at what stage you are? Well, um, I mean, I, I'm, it's, it's, at the moment it's very embryonic, it's small, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more of an ideal than a fact. What we are doing, I mean, to tell you what we have done and are doing, we've created a website which is, is not bad and right. has the videos on it and mm -hmm. has some other information on it. We've got our first event that's taking place uh, next month, a, what is that, a Vietnamese man called Jaden Lam Phan, who um, is coming to talk in London on March the 13th and tickets are available through the website. Um, he, ex he was a child when the communists took over South Vietnam. His father escaped as one of the boat people who ended up in Hong Kong and then America. But because his father escaped, he was arrested by the authorities, put in a prison cell aged nine, the size of a toilet, and beaten up mm. and punished for not, not telling on his father, basically. Uh, and then he was extre extremely poor because the economy of South Vietnam went right down after the communists took over and you know a million people tried to leave, 200,000 of them died, 800,000 of them made it. Um, and uh, eventually Jaden was got out of, of Vietnam and in the end became a successful businessman in America. Mm. So basically you are Getting funding, you're, you're looking for funding. Oh, exactly. I mean, we're, we're, getting funding. we're doing we're doing a Twitter account, um, yeah. and one of the films that we've done, the, um, the one uh, has had a hundred thousand views on Twitter and Facebook. Right. So we're getting a message out on in that media, and that was a story about um, Marks and Spencer, because there was a British MP called Teleski, who came from Ukraine and through you know an extraordinary escape route managed to get to Wales, married a Welsh girl, became an MP. And because he was an MP for the Tory party, had access to Geoffrey Howe, yeah. who asked on his behalf, the, the Soviet foreign minister, if his father, who had been sent to a gulag in, in uh, well, September, had worked in the, in, been sent to Siberia, deported there, and was now retired in Siberia, whether he could come over to London for two weeks. So he came over, and uh, Zelensky, a sitting MP, took him to Marks and Spencer in Oxford Street. And the father said to him, to his own son, uh, this is for party members only. This is for party, this isn't for the public. And Teleski said, no, no, Daddy, this is, this is open for everybody. I don't believe you. He didn't believe his own son. So uh, the next morning, 
when they woke up early, uh, the father said, take me to that shop again. It, the shelves will be empty because they don't know I'm coming. <laughs> and so he took him to Marks and Spencer again. He literally could not believe a shop as luxurious and yeah. overflowing with goods as Marks and Spencer could be open to the public because such shops did not exist in the Soviet Union. When you look at the way the children are being taught, which we talked about earlier, uh, or not taught about communism, other than your brilliant idea um, of a campaign, uh, of a museum, how can we change the history as it is taught in schools, or is it just simply you know, a battle that can't be fought? Oh, I think it can and should be fought. Uh, it takes resources, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. If I could only hire a series of people, we could really do an attack on this. Mm. Um, all, all textbooks, like the one I showed, mm -hmm. are based on academic works. Okay, right, right. so you need to find you need to do some research to find out what are the books which on which they are based, and then challenge the material in those academic books. Challenge the material on which the textbooks are based, and uh, and argue for them to be changed. Go to people who create the textbooks and say this is inaccurate. Mm -hmm. This is we're not seeking for any propaganda at all. Yep. We're just seeking for an accurate and fair and balanced account of what actually took place. And I think that could be done, but it needs resources of, 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 of an academic sort. Yeah. It needs people to do it and funds to do it. But I, that's a dream to me, of mine to do. And what, the other thing that I shouldn't mention what we are doing is buying artefacts. All right. Uh, so we've bought a lot of posters uh, of Soviet ones, often they're anti-Christian, anti-religious ones, some anti-Semitic. And um, we bought some artefacts, like a bottle that was made in a gulag by hand. We bought a, um, a gun of the sort used by the Securitate secret police in Romania, a Stasi border guard uniform. Mm. So we're gradually buying objects uh, which can be used to furnish a museum. So if people want to help you, or if they want to donate, or in any way help you, what do they do? What's your website? Where is the? Uh, where can they go? They go to it's www.museumofcommunistterror. Dot com, mm -hmm. and that has a donate button. Um, uh, also, if you, you can, there's also a contact way. You can contact me, and you could pay um, directly. I think for larger amounts, it might be better to do it direct into the account. Um, so yes, those, those are the ways to get through and, and to make and to make contact. You know, th those people who want to make contact to discuss it and come to meetings, please do make contact. Well, no, it, 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 I think it's one of the most important things. If you get this done, um, it'll be fantastic. Uh, it's more necessary, I think, than ever. Thank you very much for coming on the show anyway. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, that is it for So What You're Saying Is This Week. Uh, we will see you next time. Thank you very much.